0: is uh, Dr. Roger McIntyre, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto, and I'm Executive Director of the Brain and Cognition Discovery Foundation in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, as well as the head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology at the Universal of Network in Toronto. Thank you for joining us today for part two of a four-part case series highlighting patient case consultations on bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Today we are revisiting the video case that you received via email of Mr. R.T., a 28-year-old male who is a Ph.D. student in his final year of studies. Mr. R.T. has been diagnosed with Bipolar one disorder and is currently experiencing cognitive dysfunction that's impeding his ability to focus on his thesis. Residual symptoms are very, very common in individuals of bipolar, and residual symptoms cut across disturbance in mood, cognition, and vegetative symptoms, just to name a few domains and clearly pose a considerable challenge with bipolar one disorder. Let's now talk about those challenges and strategies to overcome them as we reexamine the case of Mr. RT. So just to review the learning objectives, to review the efficacy and safety and the profile of agents approved for bipolar disorder, we will also implement a treatment plan that addresses residual symptoms by incorporating the latest advances in bipolar management. Okay, so Mr. R.T., 28-year-old male, PhD student in graduate studies, final year, busy year, planning his thesis defense, and Mr. R.T. is living with his partner four years in a stable relationship. Mr. R.T. has been given a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder. So, in any person who presents with a working disorder, I think it's important to confirm or refute that diagnosis. One of the observations that has been made in psychiatry for a very long time is once you receive a diagnosis, rightly or wrongly, that diagnosis stays with you for a very long time. This has been a problem. The problem in and of itself if the diagnosis is inaccurate, clearly. In my clinical experience in the last decade or so longer, the trend that I've noticed is that increasingly I'm seeing people refer to the clinic who have been told they have bipolar disorder when in fact they do not have bipolar disorder. That would be an example of a false positive. Conversely, many people we see who uh, have bipolar have some other diagnosis given to them, an example of a false negative. And so we have a real problem with false positives and false negatives. In other words, we have a problem with misdiagnosis. And along with that, we have a problem with timely diagnosis. Too often patients, in fact, are diagnosed many years after this illness has actually begun. So Mr. R.T. is 28 years old. He's a Ph.D. student the modal age at onset of bipolar disorder is in the late teens, so you would guess on average he's had the illness for about a decade. And by this point in time, the course of illness would be very well characterized. The majority of people with bipolar one disorder and bipolar two disorder have a predominantly depressive course of illness, more depressive symptoms and episodes. We also, in fact, know that throughout the course of the illness, many patients have sleep difficulties, problems with comorbidity, cognitive impairment, and very often patients have interpersonal difficulties as a consequence of affect instability, part of a temperamental alteration that's intrinsic to this illness. I think it's incumbent to take an extra minute or two, probably longer, to really suck out this course of illness in Mr. R.T and also a better understanding of the family history. Now, in an ideal world, we would have records readily available from the family and their psychiatric and medical history, and sometimes we have that information. But uh, I live in a world, which I'm sure like most of you, quite imperfect, and we often don't have that information. But what we're also listening for in the patient is in their family a loading of psychopathology, bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, drug and alcohol misuse. I also pay very close attention to the patterns of psychiatric and medical comorbidity. We know that individuals with bipolar Mr. RT would be more susceptible to anxiety, and substance use disorders, as well as binge eating and ADHD. There is now a tremendous amount of literature that indicates that someone like Mr. RT would be at much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. fact, cardiovascular disease is an intrinsic part of bipolar disorder, In fact, bipolar is a Tier 2 risk factor for cardiovascular disease, not just associated with it, but a risk factor. And we know that individuals with R.T. are more prone to obesity and diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And I do ask every patient about these types of comorbidities and risk factors for those comorbidities, and ask all patients about their eating history and their activity level. Of course, like any situation, you want to make sure that the diagnosis the patient has is supported by the history they've provided. So what diagnostic tool would be best to evaluate Mr. RT's symptoms of bipolar one disorder? Is it the Beck Depression Inventory, the BDI, the Centers for Epidemiological Studies in Depression, the CESD, the CD, the Composite International Diagnostic Interview, the Quiz, the Quick Inventory for Depressive Symptoms, or his diagnosis has been confirmed by the DSM-5 here, but no further assessment is needed. So we'll look to see your response. We'll come back to that very shortly. Larry Culpepper, a very good friend and colleague in Boston, at the Boston University, Larry is an academic interested in mood disorders, and has put together this very nice algorithm. And really the gist of this algorithm, I think, is really an attempt to stepwise really, in fact, ask patients about the symptoms that would comport with bipolar and maybe, in fact, refute bipolar. Keep in mind that if a patient has taken an antidepressant, the an antidepressant medicine, induces hypomanic symptoms that could in fact diagnose bipolar for you the previous dsm 4tr the antidepressant mobilization hypomania in fact did not count towards diagnosing bipolar but in dsm-5 it does and i think that's in keeping with the literature in the sense that antidepressants don't cause bipolar they simply unmask bipolar and we go through the phenomenology the course of illness the patterns of comorbidity the family history indeed the treatment approach. I agree with the responses coming in. People have the most commonly chosen answer has been the Beck Depression Inventory. It seems like a very reasonable choice. The CD is actually more in the world of research to diagnose psychiatric illness. CESD is used, well, given it its name, often used in epidemiological studies. It certainly can be used, but I think that the answers people have given, that being the quids and the Beck Depression Inventory, seem the best for Mr. RT. So he has a predominantly depressive course of illness. This is the norm rather than the exception. And we do see that this is in fact, I think an observation that's been well established, results from studies conducted in North America, Europe, other parts of the world like Australia, indicate that the longitudinal course of bipolar is predominantly one of depression. Although mania and hypomania are defining characteristics of bipolar one and two respectively, the illness is really a depressive and anxious illness. And why I bring that up is it is true that when patients utilize healthcare for the purpose of seeking distress alleviation, it's most often because they have depression and depressive symptoms. And the other part about that is polarity predominance means, well, what's the predominant polarity of the illness across time? We should also say polarity first. In other words, when someone who has bipolar one disorder manifest bipolar for the first time it's typically depression so we can see so many reasons that i've just described and i haven't been exhaustive in terms of all the reasons why too many people with bipolar are misdiagnosed as major depression but again as i said earlier very often patients are very much diagnosed with bipolar we don't have it so we need to have the false positives kept at bay and the false negatives so one of the key features that differentiate bp1 and bp2 disorders a, Bipolar 1 disorder requires at least one hypomanic episode. Bipolar 1 disorder requires at least one major depressive episode. B, Bipolar 1 requires at least two mixed episodes. And Bipolar 2 disorder requires at least one manic episode. Look forward to seeing your answers on that in D. So we've already said a few words about distinguishing bipolar depression from unipolar depression. The first point, we don't have a defining feature in the sense we don't have a symptom of depression which is pathognomonic, in other words, makes the diagnosis for you. In other words, we don't have a, a smoking gun symptom. So it really is based on probabilities and a probability approach, and not much different than a lawyer in the courtroom. You want to build the case beyond a shadow of a doubt. So the phenomenology is relevant. People with bipolar disorder are more likely to have atypical depressive symptoms, and also people are more likely to have psychosis, earlier age of onset, more recurrence, more seasonal pattern, women of reproductive age more likely to have onset and recurrence during reproductive life events like menarche, pregnancy, as well as postpartum, for example. We also know that the person with bipolar is more likely to have drug and alcohol misuse, anxiety, comorbidity, and also mentioned earlier about some of the medical-related matters. So Mr. RT is a very good example of this, where he could be saying, well, he's a young man, why would I worry about cardiovascular disease? Well, we know that adolescents with bipolar disorder. People in their teens, 14, 15, 16, have higher rates of cardiovascular disease than the general population. So this begins very early on, in life, and I would in fact treat him as though he is just less a coronary care unit. In other words, he is someone who has cardiovascular risk. That's something I would be looking at. So the question was asking about distinguishing BP1, and BP2. The answer is correct here. Most people chose that BP2 has to have at least one depressive episode. That's absolutely true. Hypomania defines bipolar 2 and mania defines bipolar 1. Cross-sectionally, we always say that bipolar 2 is less severe than bipolar 1. That's true in the sense that bipolar 2 patients don't have psychosis. They don't require hospitalization while they're in an elevated state. That being said, if you look at the longitudinal course of bipolar disorders across time, well, by definition, longitudinal is across time. Um, when you look at it that way, what is apparent is that pound for pound, the bipolar 2 disease is as burdensome, if not more burdensome, than bipolar 1. People with bipolar 2 have a higher rate of rapid cycling. They often have higher rates of some comorbidities like binge eating and ADHD and some anxiety conditions. And they certainly have higher rates of suicide, which in part may be because they have more depression, but in part may also be because they have more rapid cycling. It's speculative, maybe they also have more cognitive dysfunction. I don't know that to be the case. The evidence on cognitive dysfunction comparisons between BP1 and BP2 have mixed results. Some in fact report out more cognitive impairment in bipolar one, others report more problems in bipolar two. Now, another audience response question here, how often do you monitor the presence of cognitive dysfunction in your patients who have bipolar disorder? always, very often, sometimes, rarely, and never. I think in the last, oh, five to ten years or so, this has, in fact, been one of the changes, that pivots of sorts that's occurred in the field of mood disorders, that being a pivot towards cognition. Most people, if not everybody, is fully aware of the fact that adults who have schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder are more likely to evince cognitive impairments across the, what I call the atoms of cognition, executive function, attention, processing speed, and memory. And mood disorders, that is bipolar disorder, not the focus today major depression, both these conditions, in fact, are also characterized by cognitive impairment, but that's not really been the focus. The focus in these areas has clearly been on mood. And what you're looking at in this slide is a disconcerting phenomenon in bipolar. That being that the degree of cognitive impairment seen in someone with bipolar increases as a function of the number of episodes this person has had. This speaks to the neural progression of this illness, which is seen very early on. This is an important psychoeducation point for patients who have bipolar, why they need to be preventing recurrence the best they can. And in the case of Mr. R.T., there's no question that the number of episodes leading to further cognitive impairment will have not just short-term but long-term impact on this man's trajectory, his professional trajectory. Too often we see patients who are unable to complete their educational pursuits, their educational attainment, not in keeping with what their pre ability was. And this obviously has implications not just for their own sense of self-efficacy, and their own sense of identity, but also has implications for their function and their ability to be gainfully employed in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So there's tremendous psychosocial, interpersonal, intrapsychic, comic implications to this, and it's so important we prevent this. So I'm seeing that most of my colleagues actually screen for and measure cognition. Great to hear that. I don't think cognition has received as much attention as other domains in bipolar, like sleep and depression. 10 years ago, we spent more time talking about anxiety and bipolar, as we should, very common feature, not just as a comorbidity, but also as a phenomenological antecedent to overt bipolar disorder. I also think, in fact, that the literature now, which is compelling and very concerning, that when you look at outcomes in bipolar disorder, that is psychosocial, workplace, quality of life outcomes, so-called PROs, patient-reported outcomes, the Evidence tells us loud and clear that these outcomes are influenced to a much greater extent by depression and cognitive impairment than mania or hypomania. So many factors to consider in Mr. RT, the depression severity, mixed features, and rapid cycling, comorbidity. We talked about therapies and the risk-to-benefit ratio. This gentleman has moderate to severe depression and anxiety. Very easy to make that statement just looking at the numbers. His PHQ9 score is 15 and his... GAD7 is 12, that's the generalized anxiety score. And I have all patients complete this in the waiting room, saves me plenty of time, patients like it, It gives us something to agree upon in terms of an objective quantifiable endpoint. He is overweight, and the majority of patients with bipolar disorder are. And there's an interesting statement here, this is something that is relatively new to many of us in psychiatry and neuroscience broadly, that obesity could interfere with cognitive function. And this is part of a larger understanding that's unfolding that obesity decreases the brain's efficiency the brain characteristics consequently patients on pencil and paper tests have significant diminution of cognitive function. so given what i've said so far that is the complexity the multi-dimensionality of symptoms the pervasive persistent nature of bipolar symptoms no one at least for a moment, that pharmacotherapy alone is sufficient for most people. It's not, and manualized based, such as social treatments, are absolutely demonstrated to be efficacious. There's very good evidence that simply psychoeducation can do a lot for patients with bipolar disorder. Really focusing on social rhythms, which is another type of therapy, but also you know just demystifying and sort of really zapping some of the myths that many people have about the illness and its treatment. That being said, uh, cost effectiveness studies would suggest that psychoeducation is certainly very appropriate, and nowadays you can even access some of this online. And for those who have the access, interest, availability, and the resources to pay for it, there is actually manualized-based therapies like CBT, IPT, and social rhythm therapies that, in fact, can be very helpful. Now, in the case of Mr. RT, what type of treatment would you avoid in his bipolar depression ect antidepressant monotherapy aripiprazole cariprazine or lithium go ahead so we're looking at now a slide of the fda approved treatments for bipolar disorder this is a quintessentially busy slide and it's here only to impress upon you the vast number of mechanistically very different treatments that we have ranging from antipsychotics through anticonvulsants and lithium and i think if you Last read a study on bipolar 20 years ago, all you would need to know is lithium and chlorpromazine, maybe haloperidol. I often hear the word mood stabilizer used as a language to describe treatments for bipolar. That language is imprecise because the vast number of treatments we have, I think, have invited the need for really rethinking how we really categorize and typologize these types of treatments. I think it's better in fact to look at which treatments work in mania, which treatments work in mixed, which treatments work in depression, and which treatments are able to keep patients well the long term. Now some of these treatments do all the above. That's pretty rare. Most treatments in fact for Mr. RT are better able at treating mania. Most treatments we have for bipolar are just not good enough for bipolar depression. Tremendous unmet need. Only three of FDA approved agents for bipolar depression and that's not because of a lack of effort, although we certainly need more effort. There's been a number of treatments that just haven't been effective. I think the antipsychotic treatments are probably the most illustrative in the sense that antipsychotic treatments are clearly anti-manic and they're clearly antipsychotic. But we don't know with certainty, unless we can establish it through science, that they're antidepressant in bipolar. Many have turned out not to be antidepressant bipolar. And some are antidepressant in major depression, but not in bipolar, like aripiprazole. So... We need to have this level of granularity, this knowledge to think about in selecting and sequencing treatments. So most colleagues have selected antidepressant monotherapy as something to avoid. And I think you would be probably in the majority there. Those who chose that, that was the majority opinion. And that would comport with evidence-based and consensus-based guidelines in bipolar. that antidepressant monotherapy really should be avoided because of the risk of destabilizing the patient You're looking at here not so much an FDA approval list, but instead you're looking at a list of treatments that either are FDA approved or have demonstrated efficacy in clinical trials. And we see that there's a variety of options that are still being looked at, like deep brain stimulation, PMS, ketamine, pramipexol. There's a long list of treatments. And I would suggest that you all look at the Florida Medicaid guidelines. Now, the Florida Medicaid guidelines can be downloaded of charge from medicaidmentalhealth.org you can see in fact the url that's a pretty daunting and intimidating url but there's a simpler one medicaidmentalhealth.org the other part is that this provides decision support algorithmically in how we should be considering treatment balancing yes efficacy but also tolerability and safety so mr rt i would check his symptoms with the phq-9 and gad7 i'd weigh him obviously i also do weight circumference to check his metabolic parameters and then what I would do is I would select and sequence the treatments for his bipolar depression as you see it here, starting with lorazidone. Which happens an option, clearly, but it causes weight gain and sedation somnolence. Patients don't typically like that. Lithium and lamotrigine come next as alternatives for adjunctive therapies. And then we move into ECT. Now, we all can agree ECT will not be accepted by most patients early in the algorithm. But it needs to be stated, and then we have antidepressants and a variety of other strategies, sundry strategies here that we need to consider for Mr. R.T. He was given a prescription for an atypical agent which comports with the first-line treatments in the Florida Medicaid guidelines for depression, and a heavy dose of psychoeducation was offered to him. This was an introspective fellow, quite psychologically minded, and he was referred to mindfulness-based psychotherapy as an additional adjunctive approach. So you see some do's and don'ts of managing Mr. RT. Clearly, you want to do the right thing in terms of dosing and titration. In his case, select an antipsychotic for his depression that is efficacious and recommended and obviously keeping in aligned with the product insert dosing. I think when it comes to antidepressants, there is a role for antidepressants in bipolar, but not as monotherapy, more as an adjunctive treatment strategy. And then we have periodic follow-up intervals, so critical to Assure Adherence. The literature indicates that about 75% of people with bipolar disorder are not taking their treatments concordant with recommendations within about two to three months, and probably even sooner than that. And I think managing bipolar without managing the comorbidities like drug and alcohol misuse, other psychiatric problems, the physical health problems, I think that's just really yesterday. That's really the old-fashioned way to do business, which wasn't the right way. It wasn't a sufficient way. In, you know, here in Toronto, still to this day, patients are often told, well, we won't treat your substance use problems so you have your bipolar taken care of, and vice versa. That does no one a service. And so we need to contemporaneously that is at the same time in managing these conditions. The Spark goals are here. We want timely and accurate doses to differentiates this illness. It does make a difference in terms of prognostication, treatment, selection, sequencing, utilizing the best treatments. So how we do this is taking into consideration the best evidence, efficacy, and safety, and consider this in all patients. And as I said many times, this in fact, begin to think about managing the psychiatric and the medical culpability. Well, as is always the case during our programs, we like to leave lots of time for questions and answers. And this is no exception. We've got lots and lots of questions coming in, and I'll go through as many as I can during the time that we have available to us. So one of the questions coming in from a colleague across the country is that I have a patient who is similar to Mr. RT. He has type 1 diabetes mellitus. And how would that affect my treatment? Well, I really like the question because we know that both type 1 and type 2 diabetes is more common than bipolar. Now, admittedly, type 2 diabetes represents 90% of all people with diabetes. And as you would likely know, 90% of people with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. So the rule of the 90%, 90% of people with diabetes have type 2, and 90% of them have overweight or obesity. And so type 1 diabetes, however, is also more common. This is a very interesting story because throughout much of the last century, there has been a notion, which is not incorrect, but is not actually comprehensive, that diabetes is more common in people because of their lifestyle, social determinants, medication side effects, behavioral, that is inactivity, sleep disturbance, and so on, and all of that is true. However, if we look at the unaffected first-degree relatives of a proband, a person with bipolar disorder, we find that the unaffected first-degree relatives have a much higher risk for diabetes. So that suggests that this is actually being transmitted in the families vertically, if you will, together. These things march in the same direction. Now, admittedly, much of the literature is on type 2 diabetes, just simply given the epidemiology with fewer studies on type 1, and most would know that type 1 diabetes is an immune-based condition, which is very interesting because there's a growing and prevailing view that for many of the symptoms of bipolar, immune inflammatory dysregulation is, in fact, the underlying lesion. I think that the short answer to the question is that you really need to make sure that the type 1 diabetes is fully managed. And we know that because of the behavior, because of sleep disturbance, because of some of the medications, uh, because of some of the lifestyle choices that many people with bipolar disorder have, that introduces a certain vulnerability to glucose, insulin, homeostasis. And so I think a bit more vigilance around monitoring A1Cs and, of course, other treatment, being highly cautious about situations where the person, in fact, becomes hypoinsulinemic in such scenarios. but that really has to manage. And we don't have enough studies to say whether type monitoring of diabetes improves the outcomes of bipolar disorder. Okay, let's move on to other questions we can. Thanks, by the way, for the question. It was uh, a very, 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 very good one there. Okay, what if a patient is to switch from olanthine fluoxetine to cariprazine? So cariprazine is a new d3 preferring d2 d3 partial agonist It's approved for bipolar and mania mix it's been developed actually for bipolar depression as well as unipolar depression but again just to be clear the fda indications for mania mix, and mixed and also well as adults with schizophrenia cryprazine takes about two weeks or so for at least one of the principal moieties the cryprazine parent as well as its metabolite to achieve steady state So what I would do in such a case is I would bring the olanzine fluoxetine dose down to the lowest therapeutic dose, introduce cariprazine, say, at maybe one and a half milligrams per day, and then after about one to two weeks, you could, in fact, take the patient off of olanzine fluoxetine combination. For those who've got a a really sharp eye for the detail, you would know that the product insert for cariprazine states that the dose should be increased to three milligrams a day, on day two, so start at 1.5 on day one, three milligrams on day two, and then titrate thereafter. That's That's from the product insert. I think in reality, clinicians certainly are not only introducing more personalized approaches to patients, but they should do that. That's the whole purpose of being a clinician. And so many patients will not need to be titrated on day two to three milligrams, and that's a very reasonable way to do it. Now, keep going with that, and by the way, so once you've done that, the patient can then just stay on the charyprazine. If your patient was 62 and had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, would that change your treatment plan? Well, I guess the answer is yes and no. I mean, clearly COPD would invite the need for more tailored treatment for that condition. Chances are this person's taking anti-inflammatory and or steroid and or bronchodilators for that condition person may still be smoking, as many of my patients with COPD continue to do, even though that's the cause of the factor for most of these people, but the guiding principles would not change that substantively, frankly. The guiding principles of managing bipolar would, for the most part, remain much the same. So nothing that I've said, at least in the spirit of what i said, would dramatically change, of course, recognizing that in some patients, bronchodilators, think the ones that have more stimulant, for some people they could have some change in in respiratory, clearly steroid treatment, CLPD is one condition. I I see a lot of patients, as do you, who have bipolar and inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, and they're taking a a steroid-based treatment, and that patient, because of the steroid-based treatment, may be more susceptible to destabilization of bipolar. So there's there's some of these more granular and nuanced kind of alterations. But overall, the guiding principles are not gonna change. whole lot more. Now, in terms of further aspects, one of the questions comes in, really appreciate the question, what is the role of the pharmacist in treatment selection? Well, I believe strongly that pharmacist is an important part of the allied professional team. And I think that there is a role. And I think that uh, I hope that as the Internet of Things and greater integration of how we're doing our care and, and and having the chance to speak to each other improves with digital capabilities, that this, in fact, will become the norm. I think that as a general statement, I don't think there's been enough conversation, frankly, between pharmacists with healthcare providers. And that's, that's a longer conversation, but I do think that the pharmacist is a celebrated and I think an important ally in providing for patients accurate point of care information as it relates to the particular treatment its purported benefit, as well as its side effect profile. So I think this is really, really, really important. Okay, so one of the questions here is, a patient has comorbid alcohol use disorder or has a drug use disorder, which one would I treat first? And the answer is both. And I, I know that there is, in fact, a philosophical view that many in the field have that they would not, roll up their sleeves and really in fact divest much of their energy in really getting the bipolar under control, the symptoms, until the drug and alcohol misuse is fully abated. Or conversely, some would take the view you gotta treat the bipolar first and then the drug and alcohol abuse second. I think the evidence that's out there and my experience would certainly resonate with this is that you gotta treat both. Now, admittedly, there needs to be common sense. but uh, I just saw someone a couple of days ago, frankly, who was actively abusing cocaine as well as heroin and had bipolar illness. Now, clearly, it's going to be impossible to, in fact, get the bipolar under control as long as this is happening. And so clearly the priorities will be perhaps on one or the other. But that doesn't mean we're not treating the other condition. There needs to be a, yes, multi-priority setting. But I do think that both conditions have to be looked at as part of a motivational interviewing approach, contemporaneous treatment. Now, it certainly is true that well-equipped, well-endowed, well-resourced programs that have professionals able to do all of this, they report some very nice outcomes in our biomedical journals. I also know that a lot of people would just roll their eyes back saying, who's fooling who here? Who has those types of resources in the real world? And I recognize that a lot of these resources are just not available, or not readily available, or not uh, reliably available. But that being said, in recognizing that that's a a reality, that integrating the care, targeting both of these dimensions, admittedly with maybe prioritization, but not complete abdication of the other condition, is really the way we treat this illness. Somebody's in fact asking if, what's the mode of action of cariprazine is it just a Me2 drug? Well, cariprazine is, the mechanism of action is not known. We don't know the mechanism of action of any drug, but there is a hypothesis. And the hypothesis is that cariprazine is an antipsychotic, an atypical antipsychotic, that we refer to as a D3, D2, D3 partial agonist. And what that really means is, is that most antipsychotics target D2. And there are a couple of partial agonists that now target the D2 system, they're aripiprazole, Brexpiprazole, and curpazine. What's different about cripozine, which is a partial dopamine agonist, compared to aripiprazole and Brexpiprazole, is that aripiprazole and Brexpiprazole are predominantly D2-preferring D2-D3 partial agonists, while conversely, cripazine is predominantly a D3 partial agonist. Now, there is a longer story, and I don't want to imply that's the only difference. There's well over a couple of other dozen differences, but that's just for now enough for this afternoon. Why we think that's relevant is that the D3 system is richly populating the reward circuit, the mesolimbic forebrain, the striatum, nucleus accumbens, virus of Kaleha, but also involved in, in cognition, that is the hippocampus and the nucleus basalis of minors. And so it stands to reason that D3 engagement could have effects on symptoms that are thought to be subserved by disturbances in reward. So that would be depression, negative symptoms, and maybe cognition. And there's now actually emerging evidence that quiprazine does have significant effects on negative symptoms in schizophrenia, antidepressant symptoms in bipolar patients who are mixed emerging evidence in bipolar depression where it's not yet approved, that's off-label, and also some pro-cognitive effects seen with in both animal and human studies. So this is a story that continues to unfold. As far as questions go, I only have time for one more. We're going to wrap it up. I said, people, in fact, have offices to get through and so on. And perhaps one last question will be, how do I monitor medication compliance? Nothing fanciful. I just simply ask patients, what percentage of the time do you take it? And my experience has been, is that only about 20% of my patients, 20% take the medications as I recommend it. Now that could be a statement about my, about my lousy compliance enhancement techniques, but I also think it's, I, I, I'm gonna defend myself and saying well my experience and my report card grade of 20% is not a whole lot different than the general literature on this topic. So I think it really is something that we just keep it, we work with patients, we try to educate, educate, and educate. Folks, I'm going to stop there for now. We've had a a lot of territory we've covered, and from all of us at CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us for today's case consult. Mr. RT on bipolar and residual symptoms, part two in a four-part series of case consults on bipolar schizophrenia. I hope you are able to incorporate the strategies that we have discussed in some detail to improve the outcome for your patients. Thank you very much. Thanks uh, for participating, and all the very best.